We are continuing our series, The Letters to the Seven Churches in the Book of Revelation. And obviously, uh, today's text is not a light text, right? Uh, this is the, we come to the church today that's in the most trouble, the church that's kind of drifted the most away. Uh, we could say Thyatira is uh, Thyatira fire, right? <laughs> Thyatira is not in a good, good state. Uh, Thyatira is the fourth of the seven letters. It's in the middle. And, and as we saw in the, the first of this series, uh, that's by design. There was an ancient literary structure uh, that was often applied in poetry, but also in narrative, as a way to highlight or emphasize things. And I think we have that. It's called a chiastic structure. I think we might have that, that graphic. And it, it captures how in each of the letters it builds to Thyatira being right in the middle and, and being the church that is in the most trouble, in the most desperate state, the furthest, you could say, from actually living out their faith faithfully. And we see this right in the middle of the letter to Thyatira. We have verse 23. This is again Revelation 2. And it says this. It says, in all the churches, this is a few uh, clauses in, we'll come back to the first part of it, but in all the churches will know, and notice there, all of a sudden in each of the letters it's been talking to each specific church. The phrasing here all of a sudden switches to all the churches. Because this is meant to apply not only to Thyatira, but to give kind of the theme of why all of these letters are here, which they're intentional words from Jesus to the churches for all time. And he's saying to all the churches so that they will know that I am he, Jesus, who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. What does that mean? What it's saying is that our minds... When we grab hold of something, we believe it's really true. When our hearts grab hold of something and we believe it is truly valuable, desirable, what our hearts really grab onto, what our minds really grab onto, what we really believe, what we really value and cherish, out of that will come certain works in our life. It will manifest in our life in behaviors. It will manifest in our life in, in attitudes. It will manifest in our lives in purchases. It will manifest in our life in where our eyes go and where our eyes linger. It will uh, manifest in our words. It will manifest in so many ways that it's almost hard to calculate, but it all comes down to, at the end of the day, what our mind takes hold of as most true and what our heart grabs a hold of as most valuable. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I'm writing these words, these intentional words in these letters, because ultimately the, the works of your life, I'm going to, at some point, I'm going to hand you over to the works of whatever you're, you're putting your mind to and your heart to. And so what he does here in this letter at this church that is in the most desperate state, whose, whose hearts and minds are furthest from him, is he's issuing a warning. And he's issuing a warning, but also this warning is meant to be a catalyst. It's meant to be a catalyst to not live the life that Jesus is warning them of. And here's how we're going to frame it today. 
what Jesus is going to say is that our lives and the actions of our lives, the works of our lives, they are consequential. They matter. What's the old adage? An, an act, reap an act, sow a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, reap a character, uh, or sow a character, reap a legacy. Our actions matter. Our works matter. Our lives are meant to be consequential. What Jesus is going to lay out here is that we have essentially two options, two kind of broad paths. We, we can either turn our hearts from Him and, and we will live a life that we could say, first part, a life filled with consequences. Or we can follow Christ and, and while the journey will be difficult and it will often be through darkness and it will often be a call for perseverance, the opposite thing that Jesus is calling us to is not a life filled with consequences, but a life of consequence. What Jesus is going to, uh, the, the process here in this letter, he's going to warn them of a life filled with consequences. But then by the end, he's going to be promising them that when we conquer, when we are faithful and we follow, if we follow the life that Jesus has laid out. And so if this is your first time at a church in a long time, you're not really sure about this Christian thing, here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you follow me, you will find the life you are meant to live. Not going to be the easiest life. Not going to be the, the least messy life. Not going to be the most, at times, prosperous life. It, there are so many things that, that it could be, but what it will be is it is a life that you are meant for that's filled with joy. It will be a life of consequence. It will be a life that bears fruit even into generations. And so we're going to see by the end is Jesus saying, if you conquer, then you will, you will reign with me. That, that you are meant to have a life of consequence, to, to have a character that is growing, to have, have consequence to your life that it matters and there's a legacy that you leave behind. So, we're going to look first, again, at a life filled with consequences, then second, at a life of consequence. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these, these words, even though at, these words are not the easiest words to read. Uh, Lord, there are things here that confound us, and Lord, help us to understand why these things are here to understand why you've communicated these things, why you've even dressed specific sins and people at specific places in time as a way to speak to your church throughout all time and to us specifically today. And so, Spirit, would you bring these words home in our souls? And Lord, would you just bring us to life, to see the life of consequence that we are called to, this, this weighty life of, of bearing up in responsibility and following you, and Lord, a life that leaves a mark, that leaves a legacy. Lord, that is good. And so, Lord, would you teach us that path and keep us off the path of a life filled with consequences? Lord, would you just, Spirit, would you speak to each of us wherever that needs to land? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look, first, life filled with consequences. Look at, look at verse 18. It says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, so he sends an angel there. Angel, by the way, it says this at the beginning of each letter. I haven't addressed this. Uh, the, the word for uh, 
angel is the word angelos in the Greek, and, and that can be translated either messenger or angel. Um, and so this is probably someone who's being sent, but it's also saying there's an angel there who stands in protection over the church. And so uh, this is meant to be in each one that there's kind of a messenger, but it's an angel who's coming and speaking this with power. Um, and so it comes to the church in Thyatira, and it says, the words of the Son of God. Now listen to this who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So what, what is, is being said there? Well, this vision, again, in every letter, we get first this kind of picture of Jesus reigning. In every letter, it's a picture of Jesus and Him reigning, kind of pulling back the veil. If we could see right now what really is true, not just the problems, you know, in, in, our, in our lives, as, as legitimate as those are and troubling as those are and weighty as those are, it's, it's not the notifications on our phone, it's not the flesh and blood just around, that's not the only thing that's real. If we could pull back the veil on this physical realm and we could see the spiritual realm, we would see the reign of Jesus. And Jesus gives us, in all these letters, a different angle, a different picture of what that rain looks like, kind of like turning a diamond and looking at each of the facets. And in this one, this vision is, is giving us a vision of essentially the truth of who God is, who Jesus is. This language of Son of God is uh, meant to evoke some of the language from the Old Testament prophets, specifically the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Jesus is first called the Son of Man, and it prophesies about this Son of Man, this Son of God, who will come and will redeem the world. And, and what happens here is it also alludes to images from both Daniel 3 and Daniel 10. Uh, eyes of flaming fire, we don't actually have this exact description in Daniel 3, but it alludes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're in the fire, and they see the Son of Man standing in the fire, enduring in the fire. It's this, this kind of conviction and power, this fiery gaze, and, and then these bronze feet. It comes from a, a, a vision in Daniel 10 where it gives this terrifying vision of, of God and all of His glory and all of His power. And what we see is this foundation of bronze, and, and this would have been around the Bronze Age, and so bronze would have been the strongest metal in the world. And what it's saying is that there's this firm, unmovable foundation to things. So what's being said here is that Jesus in His reign, Jesus is passionate, full of conviction fiery conviction for this truth that is this foundation, this reality. In other words, what it's saying here is truth is there. The reality of who God is is there, and it's unmoving, and Jesus stands on that, and He stands for that in His reign. It's, it's an important vision, especially for our day, as it was in their day. Every age does this, but in, in our day specifically, we, we tend to think of truth as kind of like this game that we can play, that we ask ourselves questions like, is truth actually something that's created, that's there, that we can't ignore, or is truth something that's, let's say, socially constructed? That, that we at some point, just societies or groups of people, at some point decided what would be true. We, we develop truth for ourselves. And we're now in the process in the West of trying to dismantle or trying to deconstruct that process. 
We don't need to go into all that. We go into that a lot here and talk about that process. Uh, but why it's important is because what Jesus is saying is truth, reality itself, morality, ethics. Yes, while there are areas where there are gray areas in decision-making and things you have to, that aren't as absolute, but there are absolute truths to the universe as much as if you try to jump off a building because you do not believe gravity is true. You can argue with that fact, but when you jump off that building, you will discover that truth is a stubborn thing. And in the same way, if we live outside of the reality, the very bronze foundation hardwired into the world of what is good, what is glorious, what is true, what is beautiful, we will do the equivalent in our lives of jumping off the building. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a vision of saying, truth is there. And here's the key. Because it's there, it is consequential. We will either live our lives trusting in God and living in alignment with the truth of who he is and how he's hardwired our world and us for it, or we will live our lives fighting against it. And, and what Jesus does here is he then begins to unpack for Thyatira, a church that has begun to live outside of God's design and unpack the consequences for them. So look at verse 19 then. It says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he does first, and usually this is what happens in the letters. Jesus commends. I do see where my grace is at work in your midst. Jesus sees where they have been faithful. There are areas here where they've, they've heard who God is and they've tried to be faithful and live in, in response to that. But here's what Jesus is going to say. Something can come up that can completely derail all of that grace and the work of God in your life. And what he's going to do here in this central letter is he's going to say there are things that come into our life where we can sometimes rest on our, our laurels. We can rest on kind of like past behavior. We can rest on, I, I grew up, maybe for you, I grew up in a Christian home, and so I've kind of got it all together, and I know how to go through the motions. Maybe it's um, for a long time, I've been, I've been disciplined, and I've, I've endured, and I've, I've tried to do this Christian thing. Like he's saying, in other words, you can't rest on just past behavior, because what happens is th something can come along that can completely shipwreck everything. Look at verse 20. So he said, I, I see these things, and these things are true, but... I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. What's he saying here? So Jezebel, we, we actually happened to uh, coincidentally talk about her uh, about a month ago uh, when we, we looked at First Kings, we look at the prophet's ball and Elijah confronting them. And it was in this day of about, I think it's 1 Kings 14, uh, where Jezebel surfaces. She marries the king. And, and Israel, to that point, was actually kind of getting their, their act together, you could say. Verse 19 probably could have been said about Israel at that point. And, and she marries the king, and she comes in, and she starts introducing all of these 
other gods. And, and specifically, this was a fertility god, Baal. And so the reason why sexual morality is at the center of it is because it had to do, as we'll see in a moment, with temple prostitution. And so the way, I'm trying to say this because I know there's kids here, uh, the way they would worship was through sexual acts because it was a fertility god. So you'd reenact the works of the gods with the gods, with temple prostitutes, in order to fertilize the fields and fertilize the womb. And, and so she introduces this, and, and it kind of takes off. And, and so Jezebel is kind of this, this name in the Old Testament, this, this character who kind of stands in for this kind of tempting and seducing, right? Like, there's a reason why no one's named Jezebel, right? Like, no one names their kid Jezebel. No one names their kid Adolf for a reason in our world, right? No one names their kid Judah, right? Or no, not Judah, sorry. <laughs> Judas, Judas. <laughs> My name's Judah. <laughs> What's wrong with Judah? Uh, you know, like, no one names their kids these names, right? It's for a re- like, it's like those in, like, like Cain, right? No one names <laughs> Like, we don't name our... T- because Jezebel stands as kind of this seducing and leading astray. And she's the epitome of it. And what he's saying here is there's someone in Thyatira, apparently, who is having the same kind of influence in their lives and is leading them astray, specifically with sexual immorality and sacrificing to idols, which in our day translate to sexual immorality. <laughs> it's timeless. Uh, and, and probably in our day, sacrificing to idols would be more the equivalent to like going always after social approval and bending on your convictions to get social approval, uh, to get ahead in life. Now, how should we think about this? What's happening? You probably, I've used this kind of as an illustration before, the way that the Jezebels work in their day and in our life. Why is Jesus warning about them? How does it kind of get us off course? What he's saying here is they operate like, like sirens, okay? So sirens from like mythology, right? Sirens are, uh, at some point, here's how it goes. The, 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 the crew is sailing along. They, they have a destination. They're on a ship. And, and as they're sailing along and they're trying to find, get to their destination, uh, these usually beautiful women are calling out from the rocks. And, and they, they kind of cry out to them and they sing a song and it, and it kind of uh, uh, puts them in a trance, casts a spell over them. It seduces them. And so what the sailors do, knowing, though, that if they go towards the shore, they'll probably hit the rocks, they'll go aground, they'll make shipwreck. It's so seductive, though, that even though, even though they know better, even though they know, I'm, I'm heading here, but this is calling me off course, in mythology, the siren song is so seductive that they find themselves turning the ship, even though it means that they will be shipwreck on the rocks and perish. There's a reason why Paul uses the imagery where he says that some of you could make shipwreck of your faith. He says some have. Because the thing is, we may have done the church thing for a while. We may have been trying to strive and be a Christian for a while. We, whatever our background is, and we begin to rest on that. 
But what happens is that eventually there will be temptations. See, what Jesus is saying here is there will be temptations. In every, there will be sirens. There will be Jezebels in every generation, in every community, in every church, and in every day and age. There will be sirens that call you off course. And here's the thing. It's, it's one of those things where we, we hear those stories in mythology and we imagine, like, you know, they're kind of on the shore and they're like, you know, they have like that... Uh, what, what Ariel have in Little Mermaid, like where she's brushing her hair, like the shell, right? And they're just like, ah, right? Like we think it's kind of this overt thing or kind of this whimsical thing where it's like, oh, why would I, I would never be drawn to that, right? Like, and we, or we think of it as this just avert seduction. You know, like they just, you know, seduce them with their bodies. It's usually not that. What it is, is it's actually a song. For instance, they get them and seduce them with something, an, a, a desire that's already waiting, Something that's already in them. Something like for sailors who are sailing along, like, to make their way home. Now, it could be something like beautiful women and sex and pleasure. But often they would sing them a song that was something about their homeland and, or, or a homemade meal or whatnot for sailors who are lonely and have been on sea for so long, and it seduces them to the shore. And here's, here's why I say this, because we... We have to be on guard and understand that wherever we, honestly, we're seeking to be adequate, we're struggling with inadequacy, we're struggling with loneliness, we're struggling with, with fear and anxiety, we're, we're struggling wherever that vacuum, that hole is, what happens is that's where that song, the siren song, will catch like Velcro in your soul and find something to just pull you along with. It could be sexual pleasure. I think it's overt here with sexual pleasure because sexual pleasure, one, is something that is primal and it, everyone experiences, has that desire. Kind of like hunger for food. It's timeless. But this applies as well to the things in life that can pull us along. And it comes almost with this, like almost like we begin to fill our head and our heart with that thing that's calling me is actually, that's for my good. This thing that God is calling me to here and that the life that he's calling me to, the commitments he's calling me to, the actions he's calling me to, the difficulties and the sacrifices he's calling me to, that's not for my good, but this thing. It's seductive because we don't assume, we don't go after it because we think it'll make us miserable. We assume it offers something better. And it usually comes in times where, yeah, you feel inadequate and distant from your spouse. And so the siren call in your life right now could be, this person, my coworker, when I stay after and linger, just makes me feel so much more better. They get me. So what does it hurt to linger? And then the laughter becomes a touch, and it goes on from there. It could be something like, man, I, I'm, I'm, they don't really respect me, they don't really value me, and so... I deserve to take a little off the top. To skim a little off the top. Somehow that works where you work with tips. Somehow that works with, because you get to keep the budget, move the numbers around. 
There are all kinds of ways that the siren call could come into our life. In our day, I think in some ways the siren call could just look like complete and total distraction just to get out of the loneliness and the boredom. And so it could literally look like constant notifications on our phones. Why do these matter? What Jesus is saying is that these will pull us off course. And what they do is, especially in the more pronounced, it leads into a life filled with consequences. To a life that becomes shipwreck. So there are two options in response. One is to, to confess it. To, to cleanse ourselves of it. Look, look at the next verse. It says, I gave her time to repent, verse 21, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, he's talking to her and this woman at the church, and he's saying, listen, and here's the thing. In our lives, we tend to, though, keep, because here's the, di- the difference is, in their context, he's saying, remove this woman from the church. That's something we can do here, where we have to remove any kind of an influence like this. We, as the leaders of this church, have to do that by the way. And there are times when that is a very hard thing to do, a very hard decision, and those are things that have to happen. Here's the thing in our day. You have so many influences, so many potential Jezebels, so many potential sirens that are coming into your life, and you have to choose. Will you, in terms of repent, will you shut that thing down Will you remove it? Will you confess that that thing is luring you, seducing you, pulling you? And will you, when he says repent, turn? Will you decide not to listen to that thing? What they would do, if you know about mythology and the sirens, they would take the captain when he would start to like, oh, like start to turn the ship towards the rocks. You know what they did? They would tie him to the mast, right, in the center of the, of, the, of, the, of the ship, and they would tie him there, and they would plug his ears, and everyone would plug their ears because they go, no, we know this is a lie, but it's so seductive, and it gets to a weakness within me. And here's the thing. Where are the weaknesses within you? And when you hear it, you're willing to plug your ears or cancel that thing or just turn the volume down on it or remove it from your life, cleanse it from your life so that it doesn't pull you off course. We're going to come back to the fact that sometimes we need people in our lives who we've given permission to essentially tie us to the mast because they see when we start going off course. The option first is to have that response, but, but then the other option is to face the consequences. This is where we get to the kind of buckle up portion of this passage. It says, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. So you can either repent or throw her onto the sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now, you might read that and go, whoa, what's being said here? I think we tend to read this at first, and we think God's over-responding. Let me reframe for you what God is doing here. Jesus does not just judge willy-nilly. Jesus' judgment fits the consequences of the sin. Another way to think about this is that God is not just creating punishment. God is expediting the consequences of their sin. 
He's handing them over to it. He's fast-forwarding the tape, if you will, to see where this will head, where this will lead. And so he's handing them over to the content. In other words, it's almost like we can either do this the easy way, which is really kind of difficult as far as repenting and removing that, or we can do it the hard way. He's doing this with sick because right here the, the example is sex. So he expedites as far as the sickbed, as far as diseases, because well, I'm going to unpack here in a moment. They would, this was a culture where they, in their worship, especially in the, in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, they would, or Greco-Roman cultures, highly sexualized. And so he's expediting with the sickbed, the diseases that come from it. He's expediting with the tribulation, all the relational strife that happens. When everyone's sleeping with everyone's spouse and everyone's sleeping around. Essentially, he's going, well, it's just the Jerry Springer show at a societal level, right? The children dying, though. When I read that, I was like, why, why do the children, what, what's happening here? Why do why are the children suffering? Why are they punished? I, I read something this week, and it was right when I was processing this, and it hit, and I was like, this is, ex because sex was so ubiquitous and it was at the core of their worship, the thing was, in the first century, that's why you will find in archaeological digs, unfortunately, you will find always with these temples and these brothels, you will find mass graves of infant skeletons. Read this from an archaeologist, a poem, Holly McNeish. As he said they'd found a brothel on the dig he did last night, I asked him how they know, he sighed. A pit of baby's bones, a pit of newborn baby's bones was how to spot a brothel. This was in the article that I, where I, was, I found this poem. I said, it's true, you know, said the writer and lawyer Helen Dale when we had lunch in London last year, and I mentioned this poem. Helen was a classicist before she was a lawyer, and as a younger woman, she had taken part in archaeological excavations of ancient Roman sites. First, you find the erotic statuary, kind of like a sanctuary for ancient worship. She went on, and then you dig a bit more, and you find the male infant skeletons, male, of course, because the males were of no use to the keepers of Roman brothels, whereas the female infants born to prostituted women were raised into prostitution themselves. Why am I going into this? Sin has consequences. If we assume God is over-responding here, it's because we don't realize the corruption and the pollution and the pain and the death that sin causes. And what Jesus is doing here is he is essentially saying, I will expedite the consequences of this, this specific sin so that it becomes clear how living a life 
of giving yourself over and pleasing yourself and following the sirens in so many different ways leads to consequences, pollution, corruption that is not just in yourself, but it will extend to your children, it will extend to your marriage, it will extend to your family, it will extend to your city, it will extend from beyond your neighborhood, it will extend to the nation, it will extend to the church, it will extend ultimately even through generations. And this is why then it comes to verse 23 right after that. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. There is a confrontation here, a confrontation that Jesus says, make this confrontation now. Don't make this confrontation at the final judgment. He says, I will not allow this corruption into my kingdom. In Revelation, it is setting the stage until Jesus comes again. And here's the thing, that means that God will come in His full holiness, in His righteousness and His purity. And, and the question when we're confronted with these things and we're honest with our lives, because sometimes we just play games, sometimes we just kind of dance along the surface of this Christian thing, but we kind of just really live our lives, the works are that we are essentially giving our minds and our hearts to the sirens. And we try to paper over the consequences. We try to numb ourselves to the consequences. We try to tell ourselves it's okay and just move to another town and leave behind the consequences. Move to another relationship. Move to a new group of friends. Move to a new church. Just try to push it back. But what he's saying is ultimately I will invade with my holiness. And the question is when I come, will that be good news for you or a threat? These are very stark words. My, my job is not to be a PR agent for God and try to lessen it. Jesus says you must have that confrontation. You must address that. Because or else your life will be filled with consequences. But what Jesus wants here is he says, I don't want you to live a life filled with consequences. I want you to have a life of consequence. I want you to have a life that is fruitful, that the ripple effects of your life is not corruption from sin, but the ripple effects of your life is this conquering over your own desire to please yourself, an ability to conquer the siren's voice in your life so that the ripple effects of your life would be fruit, they'd be health, they'd be joy and peace, patience. And so, the life of consequence. Look at verse 24. It says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. So he says, to those of you who then say, no, I don't want to just follow the Jezebel, follow the sirens. I want to be faithful. What do I do, Jesus? He says, now I'm going to address you. This is what you do. And there are a few things here of the life of consequence. Four things that Jesus is going to say here. He's going to say first, commitment. Commitment, hold fast to the mast. Hold fast to the mast. He says, cling to the things. Only hold fast what you have until I come. 
What's he saying there? He's saying, hold fast to the truth of who I am. Cling to that in the midst of all the siren sounds, in the midst of all the temptations, in the midst of all the messaging, in the midst of all the half-truths, in the midst of all the glitz and the glamour and the things that shine. Cling to me. Trust me. Trust my word. Do you have patterns in your life where you're going to God's Word, where you're clinging to Jesus, where you're calling out to Him, you're praying to Him, you're asking for Him to give you that joy, for His voice, the voice of the Savior, to be louder than the voice of the siren? And one of these things that's very practical is just having people in your life that will, we need people in our life. Guys, I need people in our life. None of us are immune from needing people in our life who see our, our, our weak areas, who see our blind spots, and they're able to come alongside us and see us better than ourselves and our tendencies and our dependencies. And sometimes you kind of feel them going, I'm going to kind of plug your ears for you because you're listening to lies. Or I'm going to speak truth into your life louder than the lies that are around you. Let me ask you, do you have anyone in your life who your commitment to Jesus looks like you've tangibly then, not just kind of like, yeah, I'm I'm spiritual, I'm committed to Jesus, but that you've tangibly then gone, that vertical reality has gone horizontal and you've given somebody permission to hold you to that commitment, to help you hold fast to the mast, to hold fast to Christ. We all need that in our lives. We need that commitment reinforced. So first, the life of consequence. It's going to be a commitment for that long journey. And so allowing others to come around you where the siren song is filling your mind and your heart, where they can speak into your mind. They can, they can speak into your heart. It's not just speak truth and believe this, but massaging it into your heart because they know you. They know your pains. They know the past. They know all the reasons why you doubt and why you struggle to hold on to these things. It's not just this like coming along and just ramming truth down people's throats, but it's coming along and and massaging it into the soul. Do you have anyone can do that? Because second, then look at verse 26. It says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now, this is an interesting one when you read it because it's like, wait, does this mean that one day we all get our own planet and we're going to rule over the planet? You know, like, where, where's this going? Like, does this mean one day we're all going to be kings and queens? Or it does seem in Scripture where he says, yes, in the new heavens and new earth, I am preparing you to reign. That's, that's amazing. Like, if you've ever been like, like, I'm about the same age as, as Prince William, and we both have the same hair patterns, we both have the same, you know, like we're, I'm like, we're like living parallel lives, right? And, but I'm never, maybe, maybe I could be the king of England, but I'm pretty sure I'm never going to be the king of England, right? That'd be amazing. You ever wonder that? Like, you wish those things? God's saying you will reign, and this life is like act one. This isn't the whole thing. And I'm preparing you to reign in that So here's the second principle that comes up. It's this principle of conquering. The consequential life is a life that conquers, that knows that faithfulness in little things leads to being entrusted with bigger things. Look at what he says here again. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, 
who's able to silence those, when they start as whispers from the sirens, who those, those little temptations to just please yourself, to, to run over any commitments in your life, and just please yourself, the one who conquers in those small moments, those moments when you think no one's watching, those moments that you think you can just sweep under the rug. He says, when you're willing to conquer in that moment, He says, to him I'll give authority over the nations. It goes from these small things to something bigger. Because here's the thing. What God does in our lives, and this is something throughout Scripture, we see this again in the parable, like the faithful servant. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You are made in the image of God. You are made to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to exercise dominion over whatever spheres of influence God has given you. God wants you to cultivate His goodness, His glory, His joy, His love, freedom from addiction, joy and relationships that aren't just constantly falling apart and filled with strife. God wants you to cultivate that. God is going to call you to lead yourself first. You have to conquer yourself before you're handed a consequential role. You're meant to lead a family. You're meant to contribute. You're meant to lead a church. You're meant to rule in the kingdom of God. But you can't take on a consequential role until you're able to conquer the self. And these small, I mean, you could put it in one way because it's a crushing reality. And God wants to prepare you in the small things before He puts a bunch of other people in your boat with you. And so here's the thing, and it's never too late. Some of you are younger in biological age, some of you are more seasoned saints, right? Like you're older. I'm right there somewhere in the middle, okay? It's never too late. What God is saying is if you will invest in those small things, I will prepare you for bigger and even more consequential roles. And so do you have that mindset and those small things that God is preparing you to rule, to reign. Now, the thing is with this reigning, though, is it comes to the next thing, which is because you have to have character for the consequential life. Specifically, a conviction that seeks to serve others. Look at verse 27. It says, And he will rule over them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. What's it saying there? It's saying he, the the person who overcomes, the one who conquers, you and I, will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. In other words, right here, what we could distill this down to is conviction. There's there's conviction about truth here. There's reality here that we stand for, and everything falls and breaks on that truth. We stand for those things. But even as I myself have received authority from my Father, how did Jesus use his authority? John 13, the moment Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth was given to him by his Father, verse 3, John 13, verse 4, what does Jesus do with all that authority in heaven and earth? Jesus takes on the form of a servant. Would that be the first thing that you and I do a verse later after being given all authority in heaven and earth? Jesus did. 
He took on the form of a servant. He got on his feet and he washed, or he got on his knees and washed their feet. If, when we conquer our desires and giving over to pleasing ourselves, what it does is it forms in us over time the character that allows us to serve like Jesus. Because ultimately, when we learn not to please ourselves, we learn how to serve others. And all of us in life, if we're to have a consequential life, what Jesus is saying is you are gifted by God with a personality, with a calling, with a skill set, with talents, and he has called you to some kind of endeavor. It could be a family. It could be raising kids. It could also include a career. It could include just your personal character in your life and your influence that has an impact in ways you don't even understand or can't comprehend. But wherever you have a deep burden for the world, something that you want to address, and it's going to meet with the deep pain and the needs of the world. And what Jesus is saying is, will you serve as I serve and lay down your life for others to give yourself for that thing? There is character that comes when you learn to conquer the self and just giving in to your desires to please the self because then you learn to serve others. Lastly, then, it comes with the life, the consequential life, a calmness. Look at verse 28. It says, and I will give him the morning star. This is kind of an opaque illusion that's throughout Scripture, this morning star, but what it's saying is that eventually the Messiah comes and the morning star rises, which means the night is almost done. That calmness is a hope in the soul that leads to joy in the process. Here's the thing, if you are going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be on that journey to that destination, life is going to be filled with thorns and thistles. Welcome to the curse. Raising a family will look that way if you're parenting. Getting into your degree program will look that way. Uh, Building a healthy marriage will look that way. Uh, Building your career, providing for a family, on and on and on, nurturing a family, nurturing everything will be filled with thorns and thistles. It's going to feel like the night. And what Jesus is saying here is that if you were to have a consequential life, you need to have confidence that this world is not all there is, and you will not, every time that it gets hard and it feels like the night, you turn and you run after the setting sun of this world but instead that you would hope in me knowing that the morning is coming, that I am dawning, and that instead of running away after the setting sun of this world, you would know the quickest way to the morning is actually to run into the night. And you will find joy in the process because you know the morning is coming. I am coming. I will not fail you. And what that means is that your work, all of your work will not find the fullness of its in this life. Your work, ultimately, you'll see the fullness of it in in the new heavens and new earth, which means you can lean in right now with the thing that's right in front of you, knowing that the the fullness of it is going to come in the new heavens and new earth, and God is going to accomplish that work. This is something that J.R.R. Tolkien struggled with, and one night he wrote a quick story that became Leaf by Niggle. And J.R.R. Tolkien struggled. He wrote Lord of the Rings, whatnot. He struggled with this 
Like, what would be the outcome of his life's work? Because he felt like he kept trying to do these things, and they kept kind of, like, he could only accomplish this little thing, and he had these big dreams of what he felt God wanted to call him to. And you might have a big dream of the life that you feel God, the character that God has called you to, the career, the family, whatever that is. But it seems like again and again and again, you're just kind of in the night, and you keep coming up against walls. And Jesus gives this hope because... What he's saying is, you, if you invest in the small things, I will take care of the big things. And so what he, Tolkien wrote this story about this artist, Niggle, who kept trying to draw this leaf because he wanted to draw the whole tree. And he found again and again, all he could do was get this one leaf, and his whole life was given to that one leaf. And he wondered, did I give my life for anything? Was it consequential? And then he gets, when he dies... He enters the new land. He gets to see the tree. It says this. He says, before him stood a tree, his tree, finished its leaves opening, its branches growing in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and yet had so often failed to catch. His, he gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It is a gift, he said. Your every faithful act, while it may seem like just the size of a leaf in comparison to a tree, of silencing the siren calls, serving your spouse, serving your coworkers, being diligent in your work, not giving in to sin, every one of those acts will have the trajectory beyond what you could imagine because it is a gift from God. He will accomplish it. Jesus wants the consequential for our lives, not a life filled with consequences. Generation and blessings of generation starts today. And here's the thing in closing. Jesus says, perhaps you find yourself like Thyatira, seems all hope is lost, but it isn't. Why? Because with blazing eyes, Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. For the joy set before him, Hebrews says. Why? What was the joy set before him? Saving you. He moved heaven and earth, the bronze foundations of the universe, to have you. He's sympathetic with your weakness. He's sympathetic with the siren calls. He knows all the dependencies and all the things and all the ways, yes, that you've turned and you've just been moving the ship towards the rocks, possibly even crashed upon the rocks. He's so sympathetic and understands that he allowed himself to be tied to the mast in your place. While the sirens gloated over him just the way they do you, you'll never be anything. Why do you even try? Just give in. But Jesus silenced them and he says to you and I, trust me, tie yourself to me, follow me, hold fast to me. Because he says while the journey is long, while the journey is dark and it feels like an ever-ending night at times, and so much is calling you off course. That night is not forever. The morning star is coming. 
In verse 29, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what I say. And let that fill your heart. Let that fill your mind. And don't settle for a life of consequences. But follow me, he says, and find a life of consequence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. Lord, we ask that you would work them into our soul, Spirit. Help us to hear these words in Jesus' name. Amen.